The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. By his word, God calls, God commissions, God compels us for his glory and for our good. And yet when God is calling, compelling, and commissioning out to us, we may, because of a problem in our heart, resist, refuse, avoid his good call, commission, or compulsion because of our own fear, our doubt, our lack of faith or trust in the goodness and character of God. And we are today going to look at a passage that gives us a wondrous window into why we can and indeed must trust God, God who is faithful to fulfill what he calls us to do by his divine power and presence. And so we're in Exodus 3 through 4. If you have a pew Bible in front of you, it's page 54, so you can feel free to take a pew Bible in front of you, turn to page 54. The title of today's sermon is God's Call. We'll be looking at that from the book of Exodus. I want to remind you where we've been. So to catch up a little bit where we were last Sunday, if you remember, Moses was done. But praise God, God was not done with Moses. We rejoice in the fact that the Lord is good and he has good purposes even for our failure. A.W. Tozer wrote well when he wrote, It is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has first wounded him deeply. Today's passage, we find Moses deeply wounded, but now ready to be greatly used. When we left off in Exodus 2, Moses was sitting in the dirt next to a well in the middle of nowhere in Midian, because remember, he had tried to take matters into his own hands. He had rushed ahead and he had actually struck an Egyptian and hid his body, trying to have his own timetable, his own methods and his own means of working out his own desires. So the baby who had been set apart in a basket had not yet been set apart to God. The deliverer was not yet ready. But I want to just praise the Lord this morning. Praise God that even though there are times we are done, God is not done. And so God here pursues Moses because he still has a good purpose for him. Exodus 2, verses 16 through 22, we didn't really spend a lot of time in last week, and so I'll just summarize them for you this week. It's really interesting how Moses leaves Egypt, a single man, he goes to Midian, and he becomes a married man, a family man. In Exodus 2, 16 through 22, we record, we read record that Moses met seven daughters at the well. He rescued those women at the well from others who were trying to sort of kick them away, and then he watered their flocks, and ended up marrying one of them. Her name was Zipporah. There he also had a son, and he settled into life as a shepherd. So he came into Midia from Egypt, an aggressive, assertive, even a violent man. But here we'll meet him in Exodus 3. He is a retiring and reluctant man. He left the center of civilization, growing up in the family of Pharaoh, and now he goes to the middle of nowhere, becoming part of the family of Jethro. What is God doing in all this? Why is he here for 40 years? What are all these things happening in his life? And here's the answer. This is very important for you and I. God has not only prepared good works for us to do. He prepares us 
to do those good works. And let me tell you something wonderful about God this morning. In God's discipleship program, he knows how to custom tailor the curriculum to each one of his disciples. And here in these 40 years in Midian, God is custom tailoring his discipleship program to exactly what Moses needs. And he knows how to do that for you and I. Think about it. Moses comes into uh, Midian with a temper and God gives him baby boys. <laughs> Moses comes into Midian with an anger problem and God gives him sheep to look after. Moses comes into Midian as a self-assertive man and he ends up in a wilderness and he gets a wife. Now, lest you think that that's the same plan for everyone, Paul remains single, but how does God custom tailor Paul's discipleship program? Paul believed he saw everything, and what did Jesus do to him? Made him blind. Paul was confident that he was gifted and strong, and what did God refuse to ever take away from him? His thorn in the flesh. Paul was sure that he could charge and take control. But where did he begin? Three years in the wilderness of Arabia. God knows how to custom tailor his discipleship program for each individual disciple. You can be confident that he is doing so for you. To remind you that he can make failures followers and sinners choice servants. He's moving us, we might say, to surrender. John Wesley wrote well about this when he said, I am no longer my own, Lord, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whomever you will. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed or laid aside, exalted or brought low for you. Let me be full or let me be empty. Let me have all things or let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. Now, this is what God does in his discipleship program, but he knows he has to custom tailor it to each disciple because of our own unique struggles. So today, this is a record of a real historical thing that God did with Moses, but there's a lesson for us all. So the title is God's Call, but here are the three main points. If you have a bulletin, you have them, but here are the three main points, okay? Number one, God's gracious call. Number two, resisting God's call. Number three, embracing God's call. Very, very simple. God's call, resisting God's call, embracing God's call. And so now we begin with number one, God's gracious call. And would you join me in God's word in Exodus 3 as we begin in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock. God is so wise to have ordained that to prepare him. Of his father-in-law, Jethro, who's presented as rule at the end of chapter 2, which is probably a title for him or an alternative surname, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Notice now how God is going to call, but he's going to reveal his glory as part of that call. So now let's look in verses 2 through 5 of Exodus 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned, burned up, he means. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him 
out of the bush. Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. God is so gracious in his call that he manifests his glory to prepare the person to receive his call. Now, why is God manifesting himself in a burning bush? What could we learn from that? I'm going to suggest a few things that are interesting. One of the things it reveals is that God is so inexhaustible, so infinite, so invisible, that the only way he could ever reveal himself to us is in part. So here it is localized in a given space because he can only show a fraction of his inexhaustible glory. What else does it show Moses? It shows Moses that God is a consuming fire, that he is ablaze, that he is radiant. But here are some other things it shows. God never runs out of fuel. He is self-sufficient. He burns without needing anything additional or external to himself. It shows something else, didn't it? That God is holy, that he's set apart. He had to call to Moses, but when Moses came to go to him, he couldn't come all the way. There's a breach between God and man that keeps us separate, that in fact we cannot cross. It also shows God's mercy, though, that he would call us to himself. So here from the burning bush, Moses gets a preview of some of the qualities of the person to whom he's talking, of what makes God uniquely God. Now in verse 6, God explains that that preview comes home personally. So verse 6, and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This reminds Moses that God is that covenant-keeping God, the God who makes promises to people and keeps them. God had done that with Abraham initially. In fact, let me read to you Genesis 15 so you know how faithful God has been to his own promise. God said this to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Verse 13 of Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be slaved there, afflicted for 400 years. That's exactly now what's happened. But God told Abraham hundreds of years prior in Genesis 15 verse 14, I will bring them out and I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and they will come out with great possessions. God has already made a promise. He's keeping that promise. And he reminds Moses, God is a promise-keeping God to persons. But now verse 6 reminds us of something else that's interesting. Verse 6, God does not say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am the God of Abraham. Do you know what that means? God keeps his promise to his people forever. Abraham is still alive. He's now more alive because he's with the Lord, the Lord who keeps his promise. In fact, Jesus talked about this when he said, God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. This is why he said, I am. Moses responds the way anybody would to even just a fracture of God's glory. Look at the end of verse 6. Moses hid his face. This is the first time we read of the word kodesh here in verse 5, referring to holiness in reference to God. God's holiness is so blazing and so bright that here as it's first presented in the Bible, it can only cause us to realize what we are not. 
And yet God's glory is come to help people in need in compassion. And so if you look in verses 7 through 9 now, we'll see that God is answering the prayer that our brother read for us earlier from chapter 2. The people are crying out. But look how compassionate God is in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry. Notice God sees, God hears. Because of their taskmasters, I know their sufferings. God sees and God hears and God has compassion on his people and God answers prayer in accord with his promise. Look down at verse 9. Now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. Praise God. He hears prayer and acts to fulfill his promise. But notice God will be the one who fulfills it. Would you look in verse 8? And I have come down to deliver them. Who will be the hero of this exodus? Well, as we'll see rather clearly today, it will be God. And yet God in his mercy works through people. So we read that God will work through a deliverer in verse 10. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. So God will do the delivering, but in his grace he will use means. If perhaps when you look in verse 8 you're concerned, what is God doing? He's delivering them to take them to a place, a place that he had promised. He'd promised, remember, Abraham, a people of numerous offspring. That has been fulfilled in part. But he's also promised them a place. They're not in that place yet. They're not in the land of Canaan. They're in Egypt. Now, notice he says he'll take them to Egypt, but they're already, or sorry, he'll take them to Canaan, but notice there are already people there. You see that in verse 8, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. If you're here this morning you've, and you've struggled with that, you've struggled with the book of Joshua and the book of Judges, how is it that God can bring his people to a place where there are already people? Isn't that wrong for him to displace those people? But maybe you don't know that in Genesis 15, when God very first promised to Abraham that he would send him to a place, God said this, the wickedness of the Amorites is not yet complete. So why did God wait several hundred years before displacing them? Because that's how patient and forbearing God is. And what is God's patience and forbearance intended to do? To lead us to repentance. Never confuse God's delay with God's approval. Understand that God's delay is forbearance so that we would repent. And here's how merciful God is. Even when the day of judgment comes, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Think of, do you remember what happened when they finally got to the land of Canaan? They start with Jericho. And the walls come down except for Rahab. So if you struggle with God's judgment, don't miss how merciful it is, how patient it is, and how even on the day it falls, he'll save any who call on the name of the Lord. So now we see Moses' response. And contrasting God's great glory, we see man's great frailty. So look in verse 11. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. Notice God has revealed his glory through a burning bush. God has talked about how he keeps his promises. He's been keeping them for hundreds of years. God's going to use Moses. Moses' first thought, though, is, but who am I? I can't do this. There are several reasons Moses feels inadequate. One of them is that he's been criticized by others. Do you remember in chapter 2 when he first intervened and then he saw the two Hebrews and do you remember what the Hebrews said to Moses? Who are you? Who has made you judge? 
Perhaps one of the reasons you as well have struggled to follow the call of God is because you've received undue criticism from others. Surely we want to learn from criticism, but at the end of the day, we can't let godless criticism cripple us when God has called us to do something. Perhaps for years you've been sidelined because you've thought, well, I I can't do it. People have told me I can't do it. Wait, but has God called you to do it? Isn't that all that matters? Moses is not only hesitant because he's been criticized, he's hesitant because he continues to look at his own abilities. He looks at the track record of what he brings to the table, forgetting that what matters is not what we bring to the table, but what God has at the table. Look in verse 12, how quickly God corrects Moses. God said, but I will be with you. Friends, isn't that enough? God has said, go. Moses has said, who am I? God has said, guess what? I'm coming too. That's enough. God is so merciful, he gives even more. This shall be the sign to you that I've sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this very mountain. They're on Mount Horeb. It's also known as Mount Sinai. That's where they'll return. Verse 13, Moses now tries to wiggle out. (laughs) Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your father has sent me to you, and they ask, what is his name? What shall I say? So God, what if they don't really know who you are or what your character is? I think what Moses means here is, God, what would make you trustworthy? If they say, what about God means that we should trust him now, what should I answer? And verse 14 is so wonderful. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. The lesson, again, is so clear. It's not about who we are. It's about who God is. And who is God? God is who he is all the time. What a beautiful answer. Rather than God giving one aspect of who he is or one characteristic or attribute of who he is, God simply says, I am all that I am all the time. Not that I was, not only that I will be, but I am God at all times. The real question is not who Moses is, but who God is. The Exodus does not depend on the competence of Moses, but on the presence of God. Moses essentially says, I cannot do this. God essentially says, you're not. I am. I wonder if you've ever noticed that God's name is tied to God's power. Look in verse 15 and following. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name. Thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So verse 16, go and gather the elders and say to them, the Lord, the God, he repeats it all, has appeared to me. I've observed you and what has been done to you. But now notice verse 17. And I promise that I will bring you up. God's name is tied to God's ability. Have you ever thought about God's name as not merely an address, but a revelation? Isn't that how it's used? When God the Son left heaven and came to earth, what did the angel tell his parents to call him? To call him Jesus. Why? As an address? No, as a revelation. To call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. The name of God is not 
an address. It's a revelation of what God does. Isn't that what Jesus taught us when he said, if you pray, pray in my name, whatever you ask in my name, I will do, because my name is not merely an address, it is power. Jesus, in fact, describes himself in this same way, I am. I tell you the truth, he said in John 8, before Abraham was born, I am. Have you ever thought about the third commandment that way? When we get to Exodus 20, God will give Moses the Ten Commandments. You know the third commandment? Do not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And probably you've thought about it this way before. You've thought, yeah, I shouldn't say God's name casually or vainly or without giving it proper respect. And, And that's true. We shouldn't say God's name when we stub our toe or we get a great parking spot or something like that. But there's a lot more to it. Don't forget Exodus 3 when you get to Exodus 20. In Exodus 20, when God gives the Ten Commandments and says, don't take my name in vain, that's the same God who from the burning bush said, I am and I will bring you up. Brothers and sisters, we take God's name in vain when we doubt God's ability. When we think he cannot do what he said he will do. God's name is a revelation of what he does. And so rejoice in the name that has all power and all authority on heaven and earth. Now, God's powerful presence can even overcome our inability. So look at some of the promises God makes here at the end of chapter 3. In verse 18 and 19, he promises that when the Israelites hear Moses, they will respond. In verse 19, 20 and 21, he promises that God will manifest his glory. Look in verse 19 of chapter 3. I know the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. God's revelation will be made even clearer. Isn't it beautiful how it ends? Verse 21, I will give this people, the Egyptians, or the Israelites, favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and of any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. You shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. I'm going to provide everything you need and work justice on everything you were robbed. Can I give you a verse to memorize this week? 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. This is what Exodus records. Brothers and sisters, when the question is ability, the answer is God. Think of what God could have said when Moses said, I don't know if I have the ability. You know what God could have said? Well, Moses, remember, you got a great education in Egypt. Moses, remember all the training you got as a shepherd. Remember, Moses, you're a Hebrew who grew up as an Egyptian. You're the perfect guy to meld those two things together. But God didn't appeal to any of those, though they were providential blessings. When Moses questioned ability, God's answer was God. God's presence, God's power. Because with God, all things are possible. So at the end of chapter 3, we see that God draws near to help those in need of help. God is holy and set apart, and yet in grace, 
He reaches to those in need. God is faithful to his promises. God is merciful on his people. God answers prayer. And God uses even clay pots to fill them with his incalculable presence. But number one, God's gracious call leads us sadly to the grip of doubts and fears. And so now number two, resisting God's call. So number one was God's call, God's gracious call. But now number two, resisting God's call. And now we'll see Moses dealing with doubt, as we do as well. So in Exodus 4, look in verse 1. Then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Now God just promised in verse 18 of chapter 3 that they will believe him and they will listen to his voice. So Moses is now directly contradicting what God just said he will do. They will listen to you. Moses says, no, they won't. Now verse 2, this is how merciful God is with doubt. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? Moses said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. To help your mind's imagination, remind yourself that at this point, Moses is 80 years old and he's running from his stick. (laughs) It's been thrown on the ground and turned into a snake and he's running around. It's so interesting that he has the staff turned into a snake. Remember, the Egyptians worshipped cobras, serpents, as a source of wisdom and healing. They wore them in their attire. They used them in their decor. And of course, we all know that the last time we saw a snake in Genesis, it was the serpent, Satan. So why does God have Moses turn a stick into a snake? Verse 4, the Lord said to Moses, put your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. God has done a wonderful miracle here. He's taken something ordinary like a stick and shown he can do something extraordinary through it, just as he can through Moses. But he hasn't changed it into anything random. He's changed it into the very powers that oppose to show that you will grab them by the tail and easily make it out. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. So if God is for you, Moses, who can be against you? God then gives two more miracles in verses 6 through 10 to help Moses even have greater faith. But now notice in verse 10, Moses moves his doubt from authenticity to his own personal ability. Now in Exodus 4 verse 10, that Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent. Either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant, I am slow of speech and of tongue. Commentators debate exactly what Moses means by his speech impediment. Really, none of that's the point. He's just saying, I don't speak well. But the reality is Moses doesn't have a speech problem. Moses has a faith problem. Isn't it interesting? Moses is afraid to stand in front of Pharaoh and speak, but he's been speaking pretty well with God when he's telling him he doesn't want to go. (laughs) When he's talking to the King of Kings and the Almighty, his speech seems to work just fine. Verse 11, then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? God has an intention in how he has made every one of us. Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach what you should speak. God is reminding Moses of a very important principle. God doesn't need our strength. 
but he will empower our weakness. Here's some reminders that we all need to hear from Moses. Let me apply a few things out here. When we struggle doubting God, his word, the problem is not a lack of clarity. God's will is sufficiently clear. So never be concerned about God playing hide and seek with you or peekaboo about what he's calling you to do or what he wants you to do with your life. God clearly communicates to us through his word. Everything we need to know, he reveals to us as we need to know it. And so our response ought to, like Samuel, when we've confirmed that it is the word of the Lord, say, speak, O Lord, your servant hears. Or like Isaiah, here am I, send me. This is not an issue of clarity, but trust. There's another problem, though. Self-centered concern forgets the people who are perishing. I want you to notice now in chapter 3 and in chapter 4, Moses is arguing about whether or not he should go based on his own ability. You know what Moses never brings up? All the people who are perishing as slaves in Egypt. Something striking happens when we get obsessed with ourselves. We forget that our lives are actually to be a blessing to other people. When Jesus told the disciples to go, it's because apart from Jesus, those people will go to hell. He tells us to go because it's not about us. It's about what God wants to do through those who are perishing. Moses has forgotten that he's enjoyed 40 years in the wilderness while they're still dying and being beaten in Egypt. This is how chapter 2 ends. But Moses has not thought about it once in his interchange with God. But the root problem here, of course, is this one. When we turn the spotlight on me, then the glory of God remains in the shadows. God is from the burning bush revealing his glory, the entirety of this conversation. But it's as if Moses has turned his back on the burning radiance of God and has now left that in the shadows while he spotlights his own deficiencies by moving the gaze in the wrong place. He's thought that what matters is his own gifts rather than God's presence. As I said last Sunday, this problem still prevails so much, doesn't it? You can take a personality test online and determine what you think you're good at or not good at. You can take a spiritual gift test and decide what you think you're good at or not good at. And then you can kind of get in the echo chamber of your own self-evaluation, forgetting that that leaves God's glory in the shadows when the thing we actually need is the spotlight of who God is, not the spotlight of who we are. Verse 13 makes it clear. Moses said to God, O Lord, please send someone else. He finally, out of arguments, gets to the heart problem. I don't want to do this. But notice how merciful God is with our doubts. Verse 14, then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, rightly. But see how merciful he is. God said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart and assurance for Moses. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be his God to him. You'll be the relay between us and Aaron. And now notice God's incredible kindness and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. 
Now, as we read through chapter 4, we find that Moses is gripping that staff rather tightly. But when I read that, to be honest, it was convicting to me because I thought of how often what God has said in his word is so clear and yet how I so struggle trusting and obeying. And yet God is so merciful that he's given many little assurances to help me step forward in faith. Perhaps this afternoon, if you took some time and thought about all the little assurances God has given you, you may come up with many. All the little things he's put in your hands to make it just a little easier to trust and obey his word. And that leads us to number three, embracing God's call. So number one was God's gracious call. Number two, resisting God's call. But now number three, embracing God's call. So verse 18, you'll notice these are small steps of faith. We're now in chapter four, verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. He told him nothing of the commission to go and deliver the Israelites, but it's still a little step of faith. Moses wants to find out if these people are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Verse 19, and then the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt. Look how kind God is. For all the men who were seeking your life are dead. You can trust me. You can go. Whether or not he means they're as good as dead or they're already dead, he's telling Moses that he will take care of it. Verse 20, so Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand, clutching it tightly, no doubt. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So God assures him, you should go. You can trust me. I'm going to do it, but it's not going to happen right away. Isn't that a great test of faith for us when we're like, okay, Lord, I'm ready. And then we think Pharaoh's going to roll off the red carpet and let them all go. But instead it will be resistance. There is an important theological thing here, and it'll come up more, again and again in, in Exodus, so I'll return to it. But this morning you could be wrestling with it already. How is it appropriate for God to harden someone's heart? Isn't that wrong for God to do? You could be thinking. Let me take just a couple seconds on that. Sometimes people try to solve that by tracing a pattern through Exodus. They try to argue who did what first, you know? Some people try to argue, well, no, the Bible first says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it said, and then it says that God hardened his heart. Some people try to argue the opposite. Here in Ephesians 4, or sorry, Exodus 4, this is before Moses ever goes back, God tells him he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart. But let me remind us of some big things to help us understand this in, in Scripture. First, Pharaoh's already wicked. God is not hardening a morally neutral man. He's already slaughtering sons and enslaving God's people. So God's hardening is judicial on a man who's already wicked. Second thing to remind us, and sometimes we forget this. Have you ever heard this phrase before? Have you ever heard history described as his story. Have you ever heard that before? That is a good way to think of it. We should remember we live in a theistic universe. Here's what I mean by that. When the Bible says God hardens Pharaoh's heart and the Bible says Pharaoh hardened his heart, the Bible doesn't see those as contradictory because we all live in his story in a theistic universe. Of course, God is at work in all things. Further, I'd want to remind us that 
This is not the only time the Bible says God will harden hearts. In 1 Thessalonians 2, we read about in the end times that when the man of lawlessness is revealed and, and the church is taken, people, how will they respond to that? And God says this, I will send strong delusions so that they will believe a lie. Actually, many occasions in the Bible, God talks about this. It's not unique to Pharaoh. But let's also not forget the big point of the narrative. In the narrative, the key question is this. Who is ultimately in charge, Pharaoh or God? Who ultimately will have control over God's sons, Israel, Pharaoh or God? And the answer clearly at the end of Exodus will be God. So these passages, we should not be afraid of the fact that though we are responsible, culpable sinners, God is sovereign over all things, including our hardening, our wickedness, and the judgment that we deserve. And yet, even in that judgment, God will be merciful. So look in verse 22. And 22 and 23, if you're that kind of person that circles your Bible or highlights, this is the exact theme of the rest of the book. This is the showdown of the whole book, Ephesians or Exodus 4, 22 and 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. And if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. The showdown is to whom does Israel belong? And the answer is God. But God in grace will give Pharaoh an opportunity again and again and again to repent. But if he does not, judgment will fall. We, of course, know it will on the tenth plague. God has made Israel his sons, but don't confuse that into thinking that Israel deserves it. By the time we get to Exodus, we'll start to really question the character of the Israelites. This reminds us that there's only one perfect, true son of God, and his name is Jesus. Jesus comes and does what none of us have ever done. He perfectly fulfills all righteousness, totally obeying God, and yet willingly suffers on the cross in the place of the disobedient sons, all of us. In that exchange, Jesus bears the agony and guilt, condemnation that is deserved by us, but then he offers righteousness, his own, that we receive simply through faith. And I want to tell you this morning, if you've never called on the name of the Lord, when you call on Jesus and he's yours, then God can say about you, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God can be eternally pleased in you if you are in Christ, but that requires faith. And actually that's how we understand the end of Exodus 4. And it looks so strange. 24 through 26 is such a strange thing. Look in verse 24. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. What? Moses is going to die before he even gets there? But what has happened? Then verse 25. Zipporah, his wife, took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that it was said, a bridegroom of of blood because of the circumcision. This is a confusing text. What is going on here? Remember, Abraham was told that circumcision would be a sign of faith in God's promise. Here's Moses, the man sent to deliver the Israelites who hasn't even kept the covenant sign in his own family. Therefore, he is deserving of the wrath of God. And yet through faith, God saves. And it will require faith to the end. 
Notice now the end of Exodus 4 shows that God is fulfilling his promise. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet him. And he did, and he kissed him. And so fulfillment of God's promise that Aaron would greet him well. Verse 28, Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak. All the signs. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together the elders. Verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. But notice verse 31, exactly what Moses feared, but God promised would be the initial response. Verse 31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. Well, now we know that it'll be rough throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, but this initial receptivity is because God promised they would respond that way at first. God is leaving breadcrumbs to fulfill and complete Moses's growing faith. The big thing happening in Exodus 3 through 4 is this. God is not merely bringing Israel out of Egypt. He's bringing them out of Egypt so that they can glorify him. And God is not merely bringing Moses to deliver them. He's bringing Moses to faith in himself. The big thing God is always doing is moving us to himself. In fact, in Moses' life, we'll see that carried out in the mountains of his life. Here in Exodus 3, he's on Mount Horeb, and here God calls him. By Exodus 19, they'll come back to Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, and there they'll receive the Ten Commandments. Now, you know what happens. This is essentially their honeymoon, we might say, and the people of Israel make a golden calf. They're unfaithful the very moment that God rescues them. But Moses is now a different man. Do you remember what Moses does for them when he returns to the mountain? He intercedes on God's own character's behalf that he would not punish the Israelites. How different than how he was in chapter 3 and 4. By chapter 33, Moses is praying, Lord, because you are faithful to your promise, don't wipe out these sinful people. And yet Moses in his own life will struggle with trusting God. He strikes the rock more than God told him to. And so the last time we read about Moses on a mountain, it's in Mount Pisgah in Deuteronomy 34. And from that mountain, Moses watches everybody else go into the promised land, but he himself is excluded. And if that was the very last time we ever saw Moses on a mountain, we would be left heartbroken, but it isn't. Because in Matthew 17, Jesus takes Peter and James and John to a high mountain and he reveals his glory in the transfiguration and who's next to him? Moses. See, your life will begin with God revealing his glory, you calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. Your life will have moments where you go to the Lord in great prayer, but your life will have moments where you realize, I have a mountain of failure. And yet your life ends with a mountain of glory because Jesus didn't skip Mount Calvary. And there on that hill, Jesus took the sin that doubters, those who fail to believe in God, deserve. And yet, he bore our sin's punishment, offering us his righteousness. Don't ever get discouraged when you're looking at your own self-assessment Don't get too down when you think about your own shortcomings. Remember that God is the one who is faithful, who also will do it. And one day, even your shortcomings 
will redound to God's glory. I think William Cowper must have been thinking of Moses when he wrote this. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. What do you need to trust God in today? You can trust him. He is faithful who calls you, and he will surely do it. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you that Jesus Christ said, quoting Deuteronomy, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And that is because, God, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You do not fail your people. You do not break your promise. We can trust you to do everything you said you would do. So when you make calls, commissions, commands, compulsion through your word, help us to trust God. Faithful is he who calls me. He will surely do it. You told Moses that the reason it would work is because you would go with him. We have that same assurance. Thank you that you're so merciful that sometimes you even add additional assurance. You bring a brother like Aaron. You put a staff in Moses' hand. And in my own life, I can think of many people you've brought alongside me because my faith was struggling. Many assurances you've put as breadcrumbs along the way to remind me that you would continue to sustain me. Lord, there is nothing impossible for you. So help us this morning to move the spotlight off of ourselves and to look at the glory of God aflame and realize that you are able. God, may that ability come home in specific ways. Perhaps someone this morning has a specific area that they think, I cannot overcome this. I can't raise this child. I can't save this marriage. I can't conquer this sin. Show them who you are. Remind us that God can do anything but fail. But Lord, I thank you that one day, even the things about us that are our weaknesses will be a display of your great glory. Remind us that when we are around the throne of grace, we will all sing. And we will all sing even with our stammering tongues. Because there, Lord, we see that you finished what you started. May Christ be glorified, I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.